Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. Frankly, what Cochise County did is not lawful. Its delegation of uh, election duties to the recorder was way over the line and far too broad and way beyond what has ever happened in the past. For these allegations and, and to be so disruptive and to make a mockery of this institution, absolutely discipline was in order. To compare Tucson and Phoenix to a Casa Grande or a Florence or what have you uh, that I represent, they're not even in the same stratosphere. And there does have to be some wiggle room in state law to recognize that they're not the same. They're using curriculum and uh, to teach a lesson. I'm not going to question what they're doing. I, I'm sorry if parents were offended by that, but I don't think that is, this isn't a necessary bill. The bill sponsor couldn't cite any specific examples. We've heard from a number of parents out there that are very concerned with some of what some of the assignments their kids are coming home with. So I don't think it's a, a made up issue. I'm all in favor of teaching about the horrors of, of uh, slavery and Jim Crow and what happened in Oklahoma and so on. That's not what this is about. This is about dividing students by race, telling that race is primary. Joining me to talk about A.G. Chris Mays suing Cochise County, Governor Hobbs vetoing a bill on critical race theory and more, our Marcus Delartino of First Strategic. Hey, Marcus. Good morning. And former state lawmaker and gubernatorial candidate Aaron Lieberman. Aaron, good morning to you. Good to be back. So, Marcus, Chris Mays going after Cochise County after we've talked on this show about their decision to basically consolidate elections with the recorder David Stevens, who has some interesting views on how elections ought to be run. This can't have been much of a surprise, right? The attorney general's office basically said to Cochise County, if you think that this is legal, show us where in the law it says it is. Yeah, I think you'd have to be blind not to see this right hook coming. Um, you know, and there, the tough part about this, I mean, there is some precedent here, right? Maricopa County turned over their sort of election services to the recorder under an elections director. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, this one's going to be a little bit more nuanced uh, with that lawsuit, uh, that there was too much control sort of turned over uh, at that point. Um, But two, I also think, you know, sometimes in investigations and lawsuits, it's not the initial violation that ends up getting you at the end of the day. I think there's going to be some other things that sort of come through, mainly uh, um, the open meeting law sort of violations I know that they're looking at. And that at the end of the day could cause them some problems. Uh, But it's also, you know, this one's a big deal in that David Stevens has has been tied to Mark Fincham, former Secretary of State um, candidate, candidate, sorry, candidate, um, and and works for his organization, um, and, and which is uh, focused around uh, redoing how we vote. And so I think that's going to why it's sort of a red flag or higher priority, if you will. Aaron, do you think that this would be generating the controversy that it has and and the response from the AG if David Stevens 
If it was not David Stevens as the recorder, or if David Stevens wasn't aligned so closely, for example, with Mark Finchett. Look, I, I think the AG is looking at the law, which is what we want the attorney general to do, or kind of a refreshing new perspective in that office. But the the reality is, um, you know, are we in a state of laws or not? Like the laws really pretty clearly say what you can, you know, give to others and what you can't. And you can't give absolutely everything to one person who's not elected, who isn't accountable to the voters and everything else. And the, um, you know, you, the, the supervisors have to hold on to that responsibility. But I just get back to, you know, I, I, I liked it when we're focused on kind of law and regular order. This is disorder and chaos. And we need to get back to actually, you know, letting people vote and having ideas that people want to vote for, as opposed to fighting along these crazy personalities. Is there a, a danger here, Aaron, that by filing this lawsuit and making a case out of this, that it sort of I don't want to say raises the profile of the supervisors and, and recorder Stevens, but it kind of like at least within their circles, it gives them something to fundraise off of. It gives them the opportunity to say, look, the state's coming after us for, you know, for what we're trying to do on election integrity. Yeah, I'm not sure what the campaign budget is for a Cochise County supervisor race, but I, my, my guess is it's pretty small. I think this is part of the bind that we're in is that, the you know, the, with small groups that decide primary elections in counties that lean one way, um, you're getting this type of crazy again and again. But the reality is it just gets back to the laws. You know, we got to enforce the laws that were passed by the legislature and signed by some governor previously. That's the job of the AG. And that's what Attorney General Mays is doing here. Marcus, any any concern this sort of elevates some of the issues and maybe makes David Stevens more likely, for example, to not use machines in an election to try to go over the hand count or something? I don't think that there's any doubt that this is going to raise the profile of Cochise County supervisors um, and certainly the recorder. You know, it all this stuff is... It, I think we think that we're living in a vacuum sometimes and, and that only Arizonans care about it or Cochise County. But that's not what's happening anymore. Um, this becomes national news and you get a national following and you get people who, you know, are sitting on their couch in Michigan drinking a 12-pack of beer, start picking up the phone and calling the board offices or or the recorder's office or and, and screaming profanities and whatever. So, you know, we have to start recognizing that those things have effect uh, a lot bigger than I think we initially think. All right. So eventually, guys, we'll be able to stop talking about specifically elections. But that time is not quite yet. Um, this week, uh, House Democrats filed an ethics complaint. Specifically, one uh, representative filed an ethics complaint against Representative Liz Harris. They called for her censure. That did not happen. Uh, this is over, of course, that uh, now infamous uh, elections committee hearing from a couple of weeks ago when a presenter that Harris brought to that committee I don't know if it was insinuated. You kind of just said that a number of state election, the state officials, including the governor, including some Republicans, were uh, on the take with uh, drug cartels from Mexico over election issues. Aaron, you've serving in the legislature. Like, do you get the sense this this ethics thing is going to go anywhere? I, I I hope so. Honestly, I mean, this is the crazy caucus part two. And if you get elected in the you know the state of Arizona, your legislators down there, you have a duty. You have a duty when you're holding a public hearing to to actually make sure that um, what's being talked about has some modicum of truth. It's a little bit like the Fincham case. You got to you know at least have some reason to believe somebody is presenting something in good faith. This stuff is just absolutely nuts. And uh, honestly, it's it, it it makes absolutely no sense. And on some level, there's got to be some accountability, or there's going to be more of it. And and that's what I think is really at stake here, because there's a lot of other people down there now who think a little bit like Liz Harris does, and they're looking to see what. What, what happens when you cross that line? And if there's no uh, response, if there's nothing to hold her accountable for what she did, we're going to see even more of that. And that's not good for the state. 
Well, I think the real question for Aaron is, as a former member, are you a little bummed out you didn't stay in it to get some Sinaloa money? I'm really, really not sorry <laughs> on this issue that I was not in currently involved in the legislature. So here's, I would, uh, here's what happened, folks, is that, that you know a censure motion was uh, filed by the Democrats on the floor, and the Republicans brought up the fact that it hadn't been through an ethics committee, um, and you need an ethics complaint to do that. And now we're at that process. The Democrats have filed um, the, the ethics complaint. Um, and I think that there is – I don't think we've heard the last of this is uh, the best way I can put it. I think this is not one, going to be one of those cases where the ethics committee immediately comes out and says there's no grounds. Um, and I, I think that this may become a bigger story in the next couple of weeks. If you are Speaker Bentoma, if you're a member of Republican leadership, you have a one-vote majority in the in the House, the Senate as well, but we're talking about the House – can, is there a danger of alienating Liz Harris? Is there a danger of alienating folks who who agree with her? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am the first one to say the worst job you can have in Arizona right now is Speaker of the House. Hmm. I mean, it's it's a hard gig, uh, no doubt about it. I Yes, there is absolutely a risk to that, and you alienate about 14. Um, and that very well may happen. Uh, and so the, the session is going to get a lot more tumultuous. Uh, if you will, before it gets any better. And that's but, saying something, right? Well, I was just going to say, let, let, let's not forget that Liz Harris is the woman who, upon getting elected to the legislature, made a vow to her constituents that she would not vote for any bill until they had redone the previous election, which, by the way, she was one in. I mean, this is, this is the type of kind of mental gymnastics some of these people are doing. I personally was very disappointed that she violated that sacred oath that she had made. Um, <laughs> but it, it just gets to, you know, you're, you're hurting crazy cats at this point, And that's not easy. Yeah, I mean, what does this potentially like? Could this have an effect on on non like election stuff? Like, could it have an effect on legislation? For example, if if there's an ethics committee hearing, if there's even a vote for censure for Representative Harris, or if she is censured, does that impact does that impact bills going through? If she's ticked off, if other members are ticked off by it? Well, we saw this last week when the Democrats said, "Hey, we're done voting for any bill, basically," and you got to hold your. 31 together if you're going to get anything through the House. And a lot of stuff ground to a halt. And the reality is that just about anything that gets through with 31 votes and no Dem support is going to be vetoed by the governor. And that's the honestly the the good situation we're in right now is with divided government, there's got to be some negotiation for things to happen. And we haven't been there for the last decade. I think that's why we've seen some of the more extreme stuff happen. But that's where we're at right now. And it's going to be a process for people to kind of figure that out. I think Governor Hobbs is up to 16 vetoes. My over under on that is probably 50, which I think is Napolitano's record. Um, but eventually, when if something's going to happen, it's going to have to have Democrats and Republicans behind it. And that is good for the state. Is that, is that a challenge for a bet? I feel like we can throw down some <laughs> okay. cash on the over-under. For entertainment gonna, purposes You're only. taking the under? I'm taking the over. Oh, okay. Enter I don't know. Entertainment purposes only here, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, regardless of Liz Harris, at every single Republican vote is needed at 31, right? So right. anybody for any reason whatsoever can, can hold up a bill or hold up the budget. Um, and I think that they're all figuring that out for whatever their project is, whatever they would like to get in their district now. Naturally, they're saying, you know, I'm not going to vote for X if I don't get Y. Um, and that's that's politics. But back to your sort of your original point is, you know, every move that's made right now is sort of it, with the thought of where are we going to be in two years? And when you look at, you know, a one seat majority 
And you look at at least, you know, three seats that I can think of that were very tight. One arguably was a surprise for Republicans, lucky to win down in Yuma. In the House. Um, This gets real sensitive real quick. And and what effects of our actions are going to have on our majority moving forward? But, But Marcus, let's get to that budget question. Is there is there a a one percent chance that the governor would sign a budget that only thirty one Republicans voted for and no Dems? I, I I see that as less than zero. So the idea that you just need thirty one Republicans to pass a budget is I mean I, we, they did that once and it got vetoed already. They're gonna need Dem support to have a budget that the governor will sign. That means they're gonna lose some Republicans, and in the end, this will come down to a coalition of the willing of the the grownups in the room who are willing to say, okay, what's good for the state and what can we do here? Don't you think? I'm curious. You're well, it's happened before. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. We've already seen that sort of happen. Just last certainly year. Just last year. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I'd love to take that bet too, but because uh, <laughs> it's like free money. Uh, but yeah, I think that's going to absolutely happen. Um, and you're going to have a good sized coalition of Republicans who fall off the budget. There is no doubt about it. But I, I do have some concern. You know, folks need to realize our budget needs to be done by June 30th at midnight. I a little curious at this point of whether we're going to make it or 1202 1203 mm-hmm. right it could be well, a little bit well the clock has been it's been turned off to be before played with yeah. late in the it was evening. kind of like vegas those those years they turned no clocks closed the windows nobody could see what time it was outside that that may or may not be true. I, can't, I cannot <laughs> confirm nor deny. That is Marcus Delartino. I'm also joined by Aaron Lieberman. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Guys, let's talk about a bill that uh, Governor Hobbs vetoed uh, just yesterday. Aaron Marcus talked about having to, you know, not being a shock that, for example, AG Chris Mays sued Cochise County. Governor Hobbs vetoing a bill on what some are calling critical race theory, probably not much of a surprise either, right? Uh, absolutely not. And this is a, another good example of where it's good we have some divided government. You know, this has been, you know, down at the legislature now for about three different sessions. Every single time when it first came up, I brought this up on the floor. Single example. Is there one example of this actually being an issue? Uh, no one's ever been able to provide one for me. The, the worst part about this is people are like, well, parents should be involved in helping select our curriculum. Good news, Arizona. That's exactly how it happens. Every single – first of all, parents and voters elect school boards. Almost every single district has the school boards have a committee, which includes parents, to really look closely at every single thing that, that, that teachers teach. And, you know, that's how the process works and that's how things get approved. If people want to have a say in that, sign up for that committee, spend the time to do it the right way. The bill that got vetoed was just another effort literally to criminalize teachers. I mean, it's bad enough we pay them so little. On top of that, to, to $5,000 fines because I don't like what you taught, it just makes no sense. And I'm so glad the governor vetoed it. Marcus, I can't imagine you were surprised she did not sign this, right? <laughs> Less than shocked. <laughs> um, and I, if I remember right, it was sort of in record time. I mean, this wasn't one that we sort of sat on the sidelines and debated for a while. So I, and Republicans knew that. Um, and, you know, from a Republican perspective, there are things that we have presented time and time again that are preemptive to, to Aaron's point that there's no current cases of that happening or nobody can prove it. There are there are certainly cases where we've done preemptive legislation to to stave off something like that from happening. This, um, But there is also, you know, sort of an art to politics here. Certainly, I think every Republican knew that the governor was going to veto this. And so from a certain aspect, this is a campaign sort of message uh, to put, you know, from a Republican perspective, to be able to say to parents, look, the governor uh, vetoed this bill. Uh, and so there's a, more than a few cases of that happening this year. And I think we're going to see a 
a large amount of those in the next four years uh, moving forward. When we heard from Speaker Toma and President Peterson before the session basically say, look, we're going to have to send the governor some bills. We know she's going to veto them, but they're important to our members. They're important to our voters. Even if she vetoes them, even if they have no chance, we have to send them just to show our voters we're doing it. It seems like this would fall into that category. I, there's no doubt about it. Um, I, th- I think that's exactly what what happened. I had one uh, one senior legislator who's no longer down there. He used to say to me, take me aside and say often, you know what this is? W-O-T, waste of time. And that's exactly <laughs> what happened on this thing was a big W-O-T for you know everybody involved because we all knew what was going to happen right from the start. So even though this bill was vetoed, we heard from Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn late this week that he's setting up basically a hotline for folks to complain about stuff or, or report on, you know, if, if their kid is hearing or learning something inappropriate in schools. Aaron, what kind of like what kind of calls do you think that line's going to get? Uh, I, I would anticipate it would be just like the previous hotline or whatever it was that got shut down in about thirty days later because so many crazy people were calling in with stuff that had no basis. And you know, I, again, no one no one should feel bad about their race or identity because of something they're being taught in school. Let's be absolutely clear about that. No one should ever be taught anything close to that, you know, one race is inherently bad or one race is inherently good. Again, I think the good news is no one's being taught those things. But, you know, the superintendent, he won his Republican primary by putting stop critical race theory literally on his signs. For him, that was the single defining issue. If you listen to him, he actually has a more nuanced presentation of it than you hear from most other uh, uh, Republican politicians and leaders that I've heard. But it just gets back to the great to, to the same thing of making hay on an issue that's important to a small slice of primary voters as opposed to getting at the much bigger issues of, of what's actually happening in our schools. Yeah, Mark, is, was this more of a following through on a campaign pledge? I mean, do you you get the sense that there might be some real serious cases that need to be investigated and dealt with coming out of this. I think, um, well, a couple things. One is like there there are circumstances where this is happening in other states. And I think that, again, this is a preemptive measure to say, hey, that's not the kind of system that we want in Arizona. Uh, number one, I agree with Aaron's comments on, uh, look, I don't want that sort of teaching going on with my kids either. But uh, here's the problem, and it sort of goes back to what our first topic was, is that we have to remember we're not in a bubble in Arizona anymore. So you set up a 1-800 hotline. That's going national. It's not just for Arizona residents. Mm. And I'm going to tell you, if you just think to yourself, if I took 3% of the U.S. population and told them to call this phone number, what would that do to that system? It's going, it's going to break that phone line. Um, there's no doubt about it. And the, the fact of the matter is there is not enough investigators. There's not enough people over a DOE to be able to track all these cases down because a good a huge percentage of these are going to be, well, I heard it on the internet or I read it somewhere or a neighbor told me. Um, and so I, I don't know functionally how this is going to sort of pan out. But by the way, one other thing on this bill, you, you know who could still teach all the critical race theory they wanted, even if this bill were you know miraculously signed? Um, that would be all of the kids who are being funded by Arizona vouchers and ESAs and private schools that were not applied to this at all. And, you know, it's a, it's another kind of rules for thee but not for me here where if we're now sending hundreds of millions of dollars, which is the current situation of ESA voucher money to fund kids to go to private schools, is it okay that that taxpayer money is being used to teach critical race theory? Again, there's some core inconsistencies here that just don't make any sense to me. Guys, let me ask you about another uh, a pair of, of measures that went through the state Senate this week, one dealing with basically getting rid of charter cities. Um, the other would uh, ask voters to uh, have Tucson's election system changed. Tucson has kind of an unusual system uh, for city elections in terms of wards and then people running uh, at large. 
Marcus, this was one that a couple of Republicans, uh, T.J. Shope and Ken Bennett, voted against the the Home Rule, the Charter Cities Bill. Uh, when it first went through, the bill was then amended. The measure was then amended to take out their cities, Prescott and Casa Grande, which have charters. We heard from Senator Shope in the montage at the top saying, look, there's a difference between Phoenix and Tucson and Casa Grande. They're just different different types of cities, which is undeniably true. But is it like, is it right for the state to try to take away these charters? The, well, both bills are uh, have to do with what I affectionately call the People's Republic of Tucson. Um, <laughs> and so there is a long history of Tucson uh, doing things differently that sort of cause problems down at the state legislature. I think if you asked a lobbyist for the League of Cities and Towns, they would tell you that they've spent 90 percent of their time working on issues that relate to Tucson and fixing problems that uh, where the solution is to apply it statewide. So uh, – you know, I here's a this is another one, and I think everybody loses perspective. Is the is Governor Hobbs going to sign this bill? Yeah, well, this one doesn't have to go to her. This one goes right to the voters. Oh, SCR. Good point. Good point. Um, and so I I don't think you know I for the folks that are living in Phoenix, for the folks that are living in Mesa, Chandler, Glendale, um, these types of bills caused them problems, but they weren't the problem child in the first in the first place. I. It's hard to say at the end of the day whether it sort of makes the makes the finish line. I think at some point somebody's going to say, "Well, let's think about this a little bit harder." What do you think? I mean, just hmm, what's different between Coolidge and Prescott and Tucson? Oh, the party of the mayor who's leading those cities. And again, this just gets to you know you hear a lot of support for local control and local you know home rule and all of those things until it's the other party that's in control of those. Those cities or those towns, and that's that's just what this is about. Um, you know, all of these things are enshrined in our state constitution around charter cities. It, 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 I just get back to: if you want to change what's happening in cities, run candidates from your party who can get elected in those cities. That's how our system should work. Instead of crying down to the capital to try to get the rules changed so that the body you do control can make rules for them. But one last thing in sending stuff to the voters: this is a dangerous game. I mean, we know this. It it is nearly impossible to change anything you send to the voters, and but. What What's really going to happen, because they're doing this now that, that we have a Democratic governor, when you get a really long list of things on that ballot, a lot of people are just going to vote no on everything. And then when you really need something that gets approved that's a really big problem, you're not going to be able to get it. So they're playing with fire with all of these SCRs. I hope they uh, end up not making it through the House and don't get all of the way there. But this is just an attempt to say, um, you know, our big issue here is that it's not our control and we don't really care about local control. Aaron, would you agree with Marcus's assessment on the, the charter cities measure that at some point someone's going to say, yeah, I don't think so. I, I would I would hope so. Again, you kind of see how the sausage gets made there, where it's, you know, you have to cut out the two people who have the objection to kind of get their vote on that. And there's uh, there's just a strange dynamic down there where there's a lot of pressure. Um, this one is scary because it, it will would end up straight on the ballot with voters with just, again, a narrow majority in the Capitol. And um, I, I don't ultimately I don't think that's going to be good for the state. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Aaron Lieberman, also Marcus Delartino here. Thank you guys both uh, for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to be here. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.